to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast where we analyse the Star Trek universe from a non-Trekkie perspective. Today we're doing another edition of Spotlight at the movies. I'm Liam Dempsey and I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matt Brothers. Hello guys. And Paul Wilson-Morris. Oh, hello. Good to be back. And we are also joined by a returning guest star. He's been on the show twice before, but the last time he joined us was in 2017 for our first episode on Star Trek, the original series. Uh, But he's back now after a long wait of three years. It's David Chomble. Took you long enough. (laughs) David, so... It's good to be um, back. It's been a long time since you were last on, and obviously a lot's changed in your career since then. For those who do not know, who are you and what do you do? I am a story artist for animated features. Uh, When I was last on the show, I was working on the movie Ugly Dolls in Texas at Troublemaker Studios for Robert Rodriguez. And that movie is well and truly behind me, behind everyone, really. (laughs) Uh, A lot's been written in, like, the cartoon community about, like, why did this work or why did this not work or whatever. But weirdly, uh, without that movie, I wouldn't have been afforded the opportunity to have the career that I currently have, which is really exciting because the, the head of story on Ugly Dolls turned out to be the guy who got me my job on the Netflix stop-motion movie by Henry Selick, uh, who did Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline, James and the Giant Peach, uh, his movie Wendell and Wild, which he's been producing and writing with Jordan Peele. And, and the movie stars Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key, and uh, I just wrapped on that project um, two days ago, and in about ten days... Also, I'm going to be jumping onto another project that I got through the producer of Ugly Dolls, which is also a Netflix animation, which is uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory being spearheaded by none other than Taika Waititi. So it's been a really crazy and unexpected uh, couple of years, but I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. Uh, yeah, that's it. And, that's and a... I owe it all to that little film, The Bond. That's a string of really cool bosses there, from Rodriguez to Henry Selleck. To uh, Taika Waititi, that's hitting out the gate. I don't know how I got this amazing like run, but I just hope it continues, and I'm really excited to start work on this new one. So the Netflix thing is that like, is it going to be like a mini series? It's going to be a limited series. I can't tell you anything about the plot or how it's being put together, but well, it we've is. read the book, mate. So it's, it's fine. part of a. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers, there's a chocolate factory in it. And it's been it, it's been crazy because like they bought up all the Dahl IP. So uh, I get the feeling that, you know, this is the first time you get to enjoy seeing all of these stories in one place, uh, with perhaps, you know, like I'm 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 hoping some interconnectivity between them. Because in the books there are moments where Dahl characters reference other characters from other books. So who knows? I still don't know exactly what the shape of this particular production is going to be. All I know is because it's Waititi, it's going to be interesting. You know, obviously Netflix is a massive, massive corporation. There's obviously, they care an awful lot about their content and they do have input, but they also have been letting artists do a little bit of their own thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, Henry Selick, talk about this guy he's just a absolute legend in the industry for being very bold and auteurish and does his own thing and you know this is a movie that he said at the annies this year when he accepted the Winsor mckay lifetime achievement award he said that this is not a uh, a safe movie you know this is a movie where you're going to see a bunch of things that that you don't see in regular movies they would never get past the note you know the, the note stage in a big studio where where you can't necessarily rankle anyone or ruffle any feathers. So, you know, just just having that level of talent around you, it it made me very happy that I'm going to be continuing with them. Well, we are definitely now seeing a lot of huge animation projects being greenlit, of course, because animation is one of the few 
things that you can still produce easily in the uh, era of COVID. And so there are yes. like tons of big animation projects that have been announced since the pandemic hit, which I'm like, there's and no And a lot of way. animated TV too, yeah. Yeah, there's no way this would have happened if it wouldn't go. So Jendai uh, Tarkovsky's uh, Popeye movie, which he's been trying mm-hmm. to get made for years. That's finally happening. The Usagi Yajimbo uh, animated series at Netflix. Like, that's something that's announced that seems like something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So the thing I've got my fingers crossed for is Brad Bird's The Spirit movie, uh, which he tried wow. to make yeah. after The Iron Giant, which there's um, some kind of animatics for and stuff on The Iron Giant, like Are you saying it's the same spirit that like, Samuel L. Jackson made? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully but good, better. right? <laughs> yes, but, but good. Like his his version looks. I mean, the original comics of the spirit are pretty like groundbreaking. And yeah, oh. if done right, uh, oh, it Brad, would, it would I be was, amazing. I was remarking on Brad Bird earlier, like with uh, Family Dog, which he did for Amazing Stories. It's amazing, like uh, sort of short that kind of springboard his whole career. Brad Bird's also responsible for one of my favorite quotes about the industry, which uh, kind of pertains to this new model Netflix is pulling out, which is the, and also to some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about when it comes to the movie uh, that we're going to talk about today, which is he said in a, I think a round table, he said that, uh, I don't know if he was quoting someone, but it's an amazing quote. He said, Hollywood is a shark that eats money. So, so Hollywood like creates things that it knows make money, but it doesn't ever ask itself necessarily why it's reappropriating these aspects over another set of aspects. And so storytelling can be, you know, killed in the, in the, in the note stage because we're all thinking, okay, let's get this bit of ingredients, this bit of ingredients, this bit of ingredients, and it'll obviously work. Whereas obviously that's just not how films are. Films are subjective. Ah. <laughs> and so, yeah, like I, I really hope he gets the, the chance to make something else that's a little bit more, I don't know, bolder. I hope so too. So today... We are here to talk about The Page Master, the live-action animated hybrid film from 1994. From the creator of an American tale. You're in need of adventure. Wow. Whatever you imagine. All is possible. 20th Century Fox presents Macaulay Culkin as you've never seen him before. Look at this place. On a fantastic journey into a land of endless wonders where he'll scale the heights of the world's greatest adventures. Moby Dick! Elsipi! Treasure Island! Happy birthday! And bring back the ultimate prize. You've got to fight to make a wish come true. That's it, boy! His own courage. Yes! Macaulay Culkin. You're the greatest. Christopher Lloyd. Triumph here and always. Take your family to a world beyond imagination. The Page Master. Part of Spotlight at the Movies, uh, the thread of our podcast where we look at a film featuring a member of Star Trek alumni either in front or behind the camera. This actually has far more than one major Star Trek connection. There's actually a number of them. We've got Patrick Stewart in the cast. We've also got Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Leonard Nimoy, and Robert Picardo, which are kind of the major Star Trek connections. But there are also multiple other And don't, don't forget well. Christopher Lloyd. Yes. Christopher Lloyd from The Search for Spark. Well, this is well, this is exactly what I would say. There, there are multiple other ones which aren't kind of, you know, big enough 
on their own. But obviously, as you say, Lloyd, who played the bad guy in Matt's favourite Star Trek film, Star Trek Three: The Search uh. for Spot. <laughs> I uh, heard, I love, love you. <laughs> um, we've also got Ed Bagley Jr., who played the bad yeah. guy in a Voyager two-parter. We've got James Horner score, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, Frank, yeah these are connections across the board. Uh, Frank Welker, who obviously is is well known uh, amongst the voice acting community, who provided some of Spock's screams in Star Trek Three: Search of Spock. That's wow, a weird I didn't little, know that. That's awesome. Uh, connection there. Good pull. That what that particular bit of trivia. I have to hats <laughs> yes, off to you. Very good. Um, I don't know whether those screams were from the bit where that was cut out, where he was like having sex or whatever. Or what, what was it in Star Trek? <laughs> oh, does God. he have sex in a cut in deleted no, scene? No, yeah, he does. Like it just changes into like different ages, and he goes, yeah. just goes yeah. through puberty. <laughs> goes through puberty very quickly. <laughs> just yeah. seriously wanking. We need like, well, maybe it's not sex, but maybe it has the same result. <laughs> um, now this film, I hadn't seen this before, but I do remember when it came out it being a big deal in terms of promotional marketing-wise. Obviously, Mm. spoiler, it actually bombed at the box office, but it was Mm. definitely meant to be a big movie. I remember it being advertised on the back of some of my weekly comics I was getting at the time. And who had seen it before out of us four? I've seen it. I've seen it before. Um, I absolutely agree with you when I say that it was one of those films that I... It was like all I thought about for a couple of months when it came out. It was like this massive deal. And I can remember thinking, oh, my God, this is God's gift to animated cinema. And and I was just in awe of everything. And weirdly, it's been largely forgotten. Like, even how hard it was for you to get a copy of the DVD. Like, like yeah. it's like, it, it, technically it's owned by 20th Century Fox, which is owned now, owned now by Disney, but it's not on Disney+. Plus. It, it was made by an offshoot of Hanna-Barbera. So it was made by a standalone studio called Turner Feature Animation, which was setting its stall out. And this was its big debut of We Are Becoming an Animation Studio. And they ended up making, because of the poor box office of this movie and the poor boxes of, of, of the next movie they made in 97, they, made, they ended up making only two films and then being consolidated into Warner Brothers. It's very sad, actually, mm. because the two movies that they made were quite interesting. One last thing about Spotlight of the Movie uh, credentials, right? This is tangential, but I think it's pretty cool. So the second movie that Turner Feature Animation made before they died was a movie that barely anyone's seen called Cats Don't Dance. And it's a movie about walking, talking animals trying to make it in 1950s Hollywood. And it's like the weirdest, strangest oh, sure, movie you'll ever see. But it's actually, <laughs> it's actually, I watched it in preparation for this. And it's really nuts. It's super strange, but has like a bizarre cult following. But guess who's voice acting in it? None other than Scott Bakula and Rene Aubergenois. They just work with <laughs> nothing but Star Trek actors. I couldn't believe it. Going back a little bit earlier, it's like seeing where this came from, that there was a uh, the Warner Brothers like, animation division who eventually ended up consuming Turner, made a film called Rover Dangerfield in 91. I remember seeing that as well. Was a dog look at Harrison inspired by Rodney Dangerfield of course it was a vehicle for him of course all the kids couldn't wait for a Rodney Dangerfield animated feature clearly <laughs> oh it underperformed, underperformed at the box of his due to lack of promotion no respect no respect at all he's the last word in animal magnetism I'm smart well when I was paper trained I learned to read he's the hottest thing that ever hit Las Vegas I love my life in Las Vegas. I wouldn't change it for anything. I got it made here. He's animation's newest party animal. Why, it's a dog's life, and I love it. 
Las Vegas is a place for me. He's Rover Dangerfield. Hey, gang, how you doing? He's a big city hound on his way out of town. Oh, pardon me. I mean, I'm new in town. Way, way out of town. Ah! I'm on a farm. <laughs> I think I'll change my name to Jethro. What a vocabulary. He's hot on the trail of fun. Get away from those chickens. Look, we're buddies. <laughs> and adventure. Uh, who do you think you're dealing with? Little Red Riding Hood? And he's about to discover... Hey, who's she? A farm is the perfect place for love to grow. I'd give up a bone My mum used to keep, like, a little log of, like, a proto-letterbox version and a little notepad of stuff I saw when I was too young to, you know, write them down myself, basically. And Page Master's on, like, the first or second page, so I definitely saw it early on in the day. So coming round to it again today, it's been like did this film exist? And you see kind of <laughs> shots and clips in the trailers, you're just like, yeah, this is vaguely ringing a bell. I mean, yeah. I don't know how much of it because of the SNES game, which I remember being a big deal, but it was just like, yeah, this was a real thing. <laughs> I know, it was a movie trying to encourage kids to read more books. Oh, and have you have you gotten the game? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there was there was definitely loads of promotion, because like you say, there was a video game of this, and it was released on the Sega Genesis, the SNES, the Game Boy, the PC... There were multiple novelizations mm. of the film. Sega so Genesis, they're wow. Really There's another dead bit of tech, like, as well as this film. <laughs> <laughs> they're really trying to push it. And like, like we say, it is, for all of our UK listeners, this film is not available on UK DVD or Blu-ray, and it is not available on any streaming services. And I don't just mean, you know, as part of your package. I mean, you cannot rent or buy it on any streaming at all. It's literally impossible to get hold of in the UK. I had to import this on DVD from America. I think for that reason, we'll probably have to kind of stick quite closely to the plot as we go through. Uh, for the benefit of those who work with their For anyone else who doesn't have like a weird Pavlovian fever dream when they hear that James Horner score <laughs> kick in in the yeah. first minute. As soon as I put it on, I said to my wife, she's like, oh, it's a Horner. Yeah, we were going uh-huh. for a Horner here. It was definitely like Willow. Like he was oh, sleepwalking so it's his such way a through the yearnful, beautiful, it's yeah. so good. It really, really sells the movie better than maybe, you know, some of it deserves. It's really interesting, actually, because uh, talking about the shark that eats money, uh, it's such a strange setup for a movie, which is you've got, like, the parents, Ed Begley Jr. being, like, such a 90s bad dad, and essentially his big gripe is, my son's a pussy, basically. It's just like, <laughs> he's so pissed off with his son but, but, that his son won't climb a tree or go to Little League. It's very 90s. Like, no, no child psychology at all. He's just like, my kid's a fucking loser. He likes books. And, what a and, nerd. Exactly. Well, he, yeah, but, but, is, like, for a page master of the film, it's like, and he goes to the library, it's like, this kid must read books because he's, where he's getting the statistics from? Not the internet. I know, but also <laughs> it's like, exactly. And, and, and also it's like, yeah, like this kid has to make more friends and become more uh, adventurous. So let's get him a bunch of books. Let's take him to I the mean, library. To be fair to his dad, uh, Colby does <laughs> almost <laughs> kill him near the beginning by accident. Yes. So, you know, yeah. before we get into the plot, oh. though, I'll just go by break down accident? the writers and directors. <laughs> 
actors who are behind this uh, mm. movie. One thing I should say about the uh, screenwriting credits this film is, I don't know if any of you know about this, but the screenwriting credits were the contention of a massive legal battle uh, for actually... Well, everybody was trying to get their name off it. Well, yeah, exactly. This is what I thought. I was like, apparently at the time, it was like the most expensive screenwriting legal battle of all time, like Mm. over, you know, who was actually the credited writer on this. So there's three uh, writers credited. David Kirshner, and this is his first feature screenplay credit, but he did have story credits on An American Tale and Hocus Pocus, and he's not done a great deal of writing since, apart from one episode of Earth Final Conflict. I don't know if anyone remembers that show uh, when it was on. Uh, we've also got Ernie Contreras, uh, who wrote Fairy Tale: A True Story, which I remember seeing at the cinema and liking. It's got Harvey Keitel as Harry Houdini. That's quite good. May I ask you a question? Go ahead. Do you ever tell anyone? Tell them what? How you do things. You know, just to see the look on their faces. Never, never, ever. And I never will, not even when I'm dead. And shall I tell you something? No one ever really wants to know when you do tell them. Finally, we've got David Seski, who is the guy who won the battle for credit. Now, his only other screenplay credit is for a film called Severed Ties, which is a hardcore 18-rated horror movie which was before this, and they were like, this is the guy we need to get in to write our kids' movie. (laughs) Also, very randomly, the director of a film which is a redubbed comedy version of early Sylvester Sloan eco-warrior thriller No Place to Hide called A Man Called Rainbow, uh, which I've seen the film that it's based on, but that is a bizarre credit. So that is the guy who officially, according to the WGA, wrote this movie. Kirshner was the producer of this movie, so it kind of reeks of a a producer really wanting to get more credit for what he viewed as his contribution. That's what it looked like to me. And it it was funny, I I believe the reason why that case ballooned so much is because there never had been any real legal opinion as to what constitutes writing credit on animation, because in the story department, people are throwing in so many ideas and suggestions through the storyboards that, uh, you know, the relationship to the original script is quite tenuous. So I'm sure an awful lot of that was like, them trying to figure out for the first time, how do we actually pick apart this kind of a case? All this legal wrangling, obviously that was before the film came out. Would they have bothered going that far after the movie came out? I'm not I'm not so sure, because clearly everyone thought I don't think anyone's be... rearranging deck chairs on that Titanic, I don't think. No, no, I think everyone <laughs> thought it was going to be a smash click, clearly. Um, directed by two directors, Joe Johnston, who directs the live-action sequences of the film. Yeah, uh, yeah. Johnston, of course, a big director, directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, Jumanji, Captain America, The First Avenger. Are we fans of Johnston? Yeah, yeah, early Johnston, yeah. I mean, like, he made a bunch of things that whether you whether they age well or not, we all still remember and talk about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, yeah. Honey and Rocketeer. I Although I believe cool. he's disowned his contribution to this film. He, he didn't like... He didn't like... There was a lot of acrimony on this film, but clearly had a lot of pro- problems in production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like Johnston. Johnston. He did, like, yeah. three days, by the looks of it. There aren't much live-action sequences, are they? So he, he, you would have presumed they were done reasonably quickly. The yeah. opening prelude 
kind of sets you up for something slightly more epic than we actually get than maybe. what we maybe get yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not without its flaws but johnson definitely directs the hell out of the opening so the opening of this movie really starts with richard tyler as we mentioned before macaulay culkin who bases his life on statistics and fearing everything his parents are a bit exasperated and want to build up him out uh, his courage and after a run-in with like almost killing his dad trying to get build a treehouse for him <laughs> where he falls off falls out of it he gets sent to buy a bag of nails <laughs> for building the treehouse there's a thunderstorm out of nowhere and richard on his bike which has got a ridiculous like uh screen up a bit like we have in these covid times yeah it's uh, like, like what is it, it's like the ghostbusters vehicle but as a bike yeah <laughs> it is it's got so many lights. I kind of like this bike, actually. I think I want to get it for Safe. Except he just dumps it as soon as there's a thunderstorm happens. You don't like, deserve this, it. I mean, I'm sure this thing's going to short out if you leave it out in the rain. God, um, wouldn't it be funny if Macaulay Culkin's character became Kurt Russell's character in Death Proof? Just like, he, he, his bike just gets more and more safety precautions on it until he's killing teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, do you want to ride on the back? Yeah. <laughs> just as revenge for those kids who won't play with him. He goes past a group of other, like, 1994 children mm. who uh, clearly just really happy to be in the presence of Macaulay Culkin their hero but having to act in this moment like they don't like him at all because he's a bit of a dweeb but they're they're dueling like wheelies and jumping over like a, a storm drain I guess it's some kind of like roadworks that looks really dangerous but they're like jumping around having a great time and he just cycles on past like a pussy so uh, <laughs> but then that's when the storm happens and he ends up taking shelter in a library meets Mr. Dewey our friend Cruz from Star Trek 3 played by Christopher Lloyd I think it's weird. On reappraising this movie, the opening was actually the, the portion of the movie I had the most issue with now, suddenly, weirdly, because I realized how it kind of contradicts itself in a couple of moments. The whole point of the story is that this kid is irrationally afraid of things, and yet the, the opening goes to great lengths to make all of the things he's afraid of seem completely legitimate. So it's like his dad's telling him he should be not scared to go and help him fix the treehouse. And then his dad has a horrible accident, thus proving Macaulay Culkin's point. And then his dad yeah. sends him out, worst father of the, of, in the world, like sends him out into what must have been a heavily forecast thunderstorm. Yeah, um, and to a go DIY buy some store. nails. There's places of death traps. Exactly, and it's like, and there's like lightning striking lampposts. There's shards of sparks raining down from him as, as he's going through the tunnel. It's like really, really well mounted as a sequence, but completely undercuts the notion of the movie that oh, what Macaulay Culkin really needs to do is just lighten up and enjoy being outside. It's like, actually, that's really, really fucking yeah. terrifying. Oh, he is right. <laughs> and he is genuinely insane. in danger and does exactly the right thing, which is run to the library. It's also a little weird because it's like the bit where he almost KOs his dad is funny to me because it's like that reeks of a studio note of we've got the Home Alone kid. It's really funny that we're making in the opposite of Kevin McAllister. But he, we, we have this massive, massive bankable star in our movie. He's got to do a Home alone thing. And so that mm. bit just felt like it was tacked on to be like we need to see him nearly kill an adult just like through like a <laughs> what he's best at. you know what i mean yeah. and so it, 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 it's weird it kind of puts me in a weird feeling because like if, if the whole point of him was that he was afraid needlessly and then goes to the library and discovers his courage and that would be great but like in my opinion he's acting completely reasonably to all of this danger <laughs> you're like he was right all along uh, what I find exactly funny about, stupid Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> what I find funny about when he gets to the library is that Christopher Lloyd's character starts talking to him about books and kind of child. The, the library's fucking deserted, but like no mm. one gives a shit. Uh, he's trying to convince him to come in and like read books, and Macaulay Culkin's character could not give less of a fuck 
about library and reading books. He's like, I've only come in here to shelter from the rain, mate. I couldn't give a fuck about your stupid old books. So I'm like, our main character doesn't give a fuck about basing the concept of the film, which is about like, exploring <laughs> these great works of literature. Lloyd is really having a ball. It is great to see him. The way he kind of like, you know, hams up his description of all of the like fantasy uh, adventure and horror while he's like trying to pitch books to this little punk kid. Like that's a fine line because you could tell he's playing it as a guy who clearly stays in the library on weekends. He's clearly a weird dude, but he but it, because it's Christopher Lloyd, there's still something really magical about it. Um, yeah, no, you mentioned Colgan, Richie Rich, same year, also same year as Getting Even With Dad, uh, which he was also in, which really weirded me out because in this film, he looks as young as he ever has. Like, you know, he looks really, really yeah. uh, super young in it. Um, well, but, I think maybe it shot that earlier than this. Yeah, like, there's a reason. It took four mo- uh, four years to make the animations for it. Of course. There's literally a sequence where you can tell that they've gotten him back for ADR for like one line with the dragon sequence later where he's like, come on, guys. And you could just tell his voice is completely broken. So yeah, yeah of course, of course. Um, getting yeah. even with Dad, like, I remember seeing that film and there he looks, that was the film I remember where he starts to look older and starts to lose that cute factor that made him so kind of profitable. Whereas, like you say, yeah, it's probably a case of these sequences were filmed earlier uh, while they were trying to make this film. Which, yeah, I mean, it's what do you think, Dave? Being that, I mean, you're a man who who works in animation by trade now. Do you think this was three and a half years well spent? Can you see? Can you see in the animation why it took three and a half years to kind of produce this level of animated quality? I wouldn't say that I could see in the animation why it took three and a half years. I can see in the story why it takes three and a half years. That They clearly were making changes as they were going through production, which is a no-no for animation. Which is because once you've committed to your storyline, that's locked in and you are going to burn through money, which is why its budget ballooned to like 34 million. And that's why it made almost nothing back because the budget was so enormous on this film. The, the, the visuals I'm actually really enamored with in a kind of nostalgic way because it's a new studio trying to set its stall out. It was using professional uh, um, veterans of other animation studios, people who worked on American Tale, Land Before Time, even people who worked on things like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. They had a, a roster of very good talent working on this thing. There's a lot of attempts to really try to channel movies like Fantasia, like when they get to the fantasy section and you see fairies. There's a lot of really quite bold visual moments oh. where where the, 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 the color palette that, completely it? changes and sometimes goes to almost like triadic color schemes where they're very stark, like the moment where Moby Dick shows up and, and Ahab says Dashi blows and the moment where Jekyll takes the potion and, and transforms, like all of this color is very, very uh, boldly utilized and the locations, like the library, the, there's a lot of designs that sort of remind me a little bit of like f- famous Disney artists like Mary Blair, like when they get to the sort of the more fantasy environment where the trees are kind of weird geometric shapes. They're trying to make this their big, timeless classic, even though they know that they're a new studio. They're trying to make you feel like this is a studio that has already existed. Mm. And so that's why they probably picked such a timeless fantasy genre to play in, to try to make you feel like like they're the new Disney. Um, mm. I think it's an awful lot of, of high aspirations, but they don't all necessarily come together exactly as they should, despite those good intentions. I really I really like the animated style here. It feels really characterful and quite grand mm. looking, despite 
obviously probably having you know initially smaller budgets than the Disney stuff. And I'd totally forgotten how he ends up in a cartoon in this. So as it was coming, yeah. as we kind of moved from the live action to the cartoon, I was like, what is it that does it? And of course, yeah. it's a terrible CG paint rushing yeah. around. Oh, I, I'm going to defend the CG. No, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm totally was... with Paul on this. Go ahead, Paul. I'm, I've got your back. I, I, just, I, was ple- I knew that I read before going into this that there was some early CGI. I'm like, uh-huh. I'm ready. Okay, mm. I'm, I'm stealing myself for this. And I quite enjoyed the moment of it because it's something about it that, you know, they would have labored so hard over that. And yeah. a bit like Jurassic Park stands up today because, like, okay, there's 14 shots, but, like, those of them of love really mm. felt like they were doing something cutting edge there. I yeah. think there's more time and kind of, like, making that match the live action that we're seeing that it just it just blew my mind. I was I mean, really happy it, Yeah, it. like, it's easy to look down your nose at the animation because this is, let's not forget it, this is a big elephant in the room, which is a year later, a certain animated movie comes out and completely upends the entire animation industry and changes it forever, which is Toy Story. This is one of the last hand-drawn animated movies that comes out that is doesn't even know that it's about to become a dying breed. Disney, the bigger studios, limp on for maybe about one more decade, but then disappear. Like, mass layoffs an entire industry gone because the audience suddenly realized what was capable with computers. And so weirdly, not only is the page master a time capsule of like hand-drawn animation, it's also a time capsule of the intersection of animation and CG. Mm. Uh, so, so weirdly, like I watched it and I was like, oh my God, this is actually like a landmark sequence. I mean, well, yeah, the sequence is... itself is really great because oh, well. it's like, you know, he's running around and all the paint's dripping from this, you know, massive oh. painted ceiling. And then the rotunda, kind of yeah. dashing around the corridors and... Yeah. The you know the, the the flood of paint coming towards him because the, the the imagination of that sequence is great and the colours and everything mm. in the paint. I can remember thinking yeah. it was the coolest, most believable effect in the whole world because I was about seven or eight when I watched this movie, and I thought it was, I thought it was like um, incredible. And so when you watch it, obviously there's like a massive like like record scratch when you see it for the first time in like several decades mm. <laughs> and you're like yeah. okay this is and and you know liam you watched the uh, the making of as well uh, that they did of the movie like it's so cool to look at the behind the scenes of like people uh in the 90s working on these incredibly cool block cube computers these old macs and pcs that just look like like a, a an old robot's head you know because they have like a fraction of the processing power that computers have now and they still manage to make something really impressive yeah i, I actually like this sequence i mean i like the entire the library set i think is gorgeous is the reason he's actually going down there to go to the bathroom no he's going to go to the payphone to call his folks I the payphone okay fair enough the, okay. in a library <laughs> there's like a there's like a payphone he has to call no it, and he says yeah it's by there through the road like, yeah it's all yeah. the way down down back so it's before cell phone. To get him oh, down there. yeah this is another reason why it was absolute <laughs> foolishness for his dad to send him out when he knew there was a rainstorm on the horizon he doesn't have a phone worst dad ever so yeah, he wanders down into the lovely big library set, which, to be honest, I'm like, I would have liked to have seen more of than we actually do. And like you said, this this mm. a really gorgeous painted mural on you know the ceiling, which gradually starts morphing into actual paint that drips off the ceiling, uh, which is the kind of CGI stuff which I saw them creating on MS Paint in the yeah. making of. Yes. <laughs> I like the notion. It's a very cool little hook that they came up with, which is like, oh, he becomes an illustration. That's a cool idea for... That's a nice justification for that kind of... I mean, uh, you look at a movie like Who Framed Roger Rabbit or like other movies that are live-action uh, animation hybrids. Cool like, you, know, you need to justify the gimmick. And I felt like the Page Master did it just about. Yeah. 
I was interested about the yeah, animation style that we talked about. I, I didn't think it was quite up to there and considering perhaps it's the story changes why they didn't quite go like that extra level of like depth with the with the animation it feels mm. like there's not a lot of multiplanar photography going on mm. uh, there's not much depth to it there's not a lot of backlighting that you'd see in the secret of nimh by don blue for american tale where you just have this extra level of artistry like where with lighting effects that bring it a little bit to life um so as soon as collie colkin's character gets into the animated realm he's inside a animated library and from there he goes through three segments the first of course is horror but yeah i, I would say the production design is great but it doesn't feel like it jumps off the screen at me because it doesn't the have the budget design that really irritates me mm. i can't like uh roger ebert by the way agreed with you paul he was like he thought it was a really dreary drab dirty looking uh film in terms of the well, colors I, were very muted yes and uh, well that's the thing and, and, like, and yeah. I, I would say as kids we're turned off by that because i must see i say i saw secret of nim as a child like just briefly clip of it i'm like i'm not gonna watch this because it's it's drab yeah as an adult i'm going this looks incredible mm. and i'm really into it but I think the same thing for Pagemaster as a child, you would be like, it's just not colourful enough. It's weird because I was so taken by the moments where everything got really pushed. Like, so when Ahab says that, she blows and everything goes red, black and white. Anytime that they went really bold and stuck with it, those were the moments that stuck in my memory all the way to this day. So I was looking forward to those things when I watched it again. But weirdly, like, yeah, the thing that irritated me was a purely a production design thing that was just like me being an idiot sucker for internal logic. I was like, why are the books? There's so many books everywhere in, the, in this library and none of them are al- alphabetized. It's like, <laughs> it's like there's like Hunchback of Notre Dame next to like, I don't know, you know, uh, Rebecca or something. It's like, it's, it's, it's so I was, bad. I was spending like, more time looking at the backgrounds like that. Yeah, yeah I was there, but it, but it just pissed me off every time I saw a book that was not where it was supposed to be. I mean, like the whole point of Christopher Lloyd's character is his name is Mr. Dewey because he's named after the Dewey Decimal System. Well, apparently you're not using your own <laughs> system in your own library. Pagemaster can't, can't run a library for shit. Uh, it's, I mean, it's you know, very, what, very irritating. What are you doing all this time? There's, There's no, no truth in this fucking art. library. He's just sitting on his ass, like not, not doing fuck all. But yeah, I yeah. The agree only person there is someone who desperately wants to find the exit. <laughs> I completely agree with you, Paul. I think it's a very muted color palette, and to me, the animation looks cheap and hmm. not particularly detailed. And I'm sorry when you compare the Lion King came out in the hmm. same year. Because obviously Whoopi Goldberg, who is yeah. does voice acting in this film, was also in The Lion King, of course. Yeah, she and was one of the hyenas. The the animation, The Lion King, is so fluid, so colourful, so vibrant. And when you compare that to this, uh, it's just astonishing. And it wasn't even made it could for be- a great deal more than this. So it's you know, there's yeah. no. It could perhaps be a bit of an unfair comparison, just because uh, the Page Master did not do well at the box office. So it probably was never remastered or given a great, beautiful Blu-ray version like I Disney agree. Movie it might be yeah, a like bit maybe of that maybe some of those colours might have been brought out in like a 4K restore restoration. But like I I do agree with you. Like you know, Lion King is on another level. Aladdin's on another level. This is definitely a studio trying to run before it can walk. And, and it, it is apparent in the style, you're quite right. So we're introduced when uh, Macaulay Culkin arrives in the animated world to our three buddies that are going to carry us through the movie. We've got Whoopi Goldberg as Fantasy. Who, who are you? I'm Fantasy. Oh, <clears throat> I'm Fantasy. Frank Welker's playing Horror. Horror always has sad endings. 
we've got Patrick Stewart as Adventure. Where's the son of a sea biscuit knock me from the crow's nest? Where's he be? Where's he be? So three books that are animated that sort of like float along with him. I think Patrick Stewart's character has an eye patch and a peg leg as well. <laughs> uh, I didn't recognise it was him until maybe five minutes from the end. Yeah, <laughs> he's doing like a pirate thing anyway. And you, you can tell it's you him when he's him. saying, hey, do you want to snuggle up with a good book? Because it's it's he was channeling yes. the sexiest man alive voice when he did that. That was it. it that was exactly <laughs> the line. I was like, oh shit, that was him all along. <laughs> That's like one of the high points of the film for me. It's where, got the best laugh for sure. Yeah, Patrick Stewart's tries to seduce <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg's character into book sex. How would you like to curl up with a good book? Uh, uh, oh, me binding. In your dreams. Peace Stew is probably the best thing about this film, more than likely. Yeah, totally. I think he well, yeah, he's really, so super dedicated. Yeah, really good voice performance. Oh, you can tell he gives a I shit. I don't know. Well, you can tell he's not phoning it in. Yeah, he's not and just it's also doing his great. voice. He's, to the You're fact so that we right, couldn't though. recognize him. You're so right, yeah. though. But but that's what I love it, which is that A, he's having an absolute whale of a time. But also, it's really. I'm glad that this is the spotlight of the movies I chose because it's a Star Trek actor acting in a way that I've never seen him act. When he's <laughs> Professor X, he's basically just John Luke Picard in a wheelchair. And anyone who thinks, you know, Patrick Stewart can't do anything other than his gravitas thing. Needs to watch the Page Master because I've seen him in uh, in the stage production of Waiting for Godot um, with Ian McKellen, and he does a Yorkshire accent because that's where he actually comes from originally as a person, and he actually can do really good accents. And I thought he did a really good. He was just chewing the scenery on this character. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I like he got to see him do his Colin Farrell thing there, like uh, when he when he drops the drops the accents, like you see the the pure Stuart. Well, you just made me laugh because you went. He's really good at accents. I mean, he could do his own one. <laughs> I say like no, but I just uh, mean that it shows though. how good an actor he is because he can become this like eloquent gravitas yeah, guy as yes, well. Like yeah. his range is actually more like people think he's doing his own accent when he's being Jean Luc Picard. Yes, and to some extent yeah. he is, but he has an original accent that he hides very well and has kind of deprogrammed himself from that he can bring back. And that sort of pirate accent's really good. I, I always thought, just as a Star Trek aside for a Star Trek podcast, that there should have been a scene where the Universal Translator broke and he's just screaming it in French, like everybody, <laughs> and nobody's understanding him. As a Star Trek yeah. aside, I will do my thing of placing this within the careers of the main Star Trek links here. Which nice. So, peace to you, this is 1994. So this is the last year of Star Trek The Next Generation. The last episode goes out in 1904, followed up immediately by Star Trek Generations. And I don't think, in my head, I've assumed that TNG finished like the year before, then Generations. But no, it must have literally been like... No, they had two weeks off. Yeah, yeah okay. literally finale, straight fucking in to Generations, which of course Whoopi Goldberg also has a uncredited cameo in as well. As I said before, uh, she also plays Shenzi, one of the hyenas, in The Lion King uh, in 1994 as well. So she's having, you know, basically a 50% great year in animation, 50% mm. bad year. We've got Leonard Nimoy, who of course plays Jekyll and Hyde in this film. Now this is the only acting role he had in 1994, but he did direct his final ever film as director in 1994, which was Holy Matrimony, where Patricia Arquette is forced to marry a 12-year-old Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It bombed at the box office and was a critical disaster. 
completely killing his <laughs> directorial career. From Hollywood Pictures, Havana's late husband left a fortune in cash. Where did you hide it? But there's one small catch. Well, I'm only 12 years old. Tradition says she has to marry his kid brother. You guys have been out in the sun for too long. Now, if she wants the money, yeah, I do. she'll have to earn it. You have to mow the lawn and feed the flower bed. I'm your husband! Patricia Arquette. This is not happening! Holy matrimony. Rated PG-13. I'm surprised I it didn't kill Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Like, oh I just God. watched it 50-50. I'm all in for more JGL now. I'll send that you the poster crazy. after this. He, the poster alone is like hilarious. <laughs> well, it put me off rather than send it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a late, that's And, amazing. of course, we have, last but not least, Robert Picardo is the other main Star Trek link, who, in 1994, was also in Revenge of the Nerds 4... Nerds in Love <laughs> TV movie. Funds. Give me funds. Oh my God. He's a nerd. <gasps> That's right. Nerds! 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 They're back. Only this time. I don't think my father-in-law likes me at all. <sighs> he may be anti-nerd. Never fear. Here. They're in a party mood. Also, Wagons East, a Western comedy. Oh, also, John Candy's last film. Is it John Candy's when last film? When was he in film? Gremlins 2? So bad he died. <laughs> when was he in Gremlins 2? Because that's a high point in Not his career. That's 1990. <laughs> Before no, 1994. No. So, Jekyll and Hyde is the first book they actually enter, mm. isn't it? Yeah, well, by it's Robert not a Louis book Stevenson. they enter. They enter like horror realm. They kind of pay lip service to the literary works that they enter. They don't really give a lot of them much like emphasis. It's like it's very nebulous. You just sort of walk through and you'll say, "Oh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Let's put a, a rabid dog in this bed. Oh, uh, like we need ten thousand leagues under the sea. Let's get a giant squid in here." You know, uh, uh, I think the, the 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 thing that Ebert liked the best out of his like rather dismal review was he liked when. Uh, Culkin uses the beanstalk from Jack and the Beanstalk to get out of the dragon's mouth. Like that was an example of the story artist coming up with a good way to solve a problem yeah, using that too. Using uh, the the internal logic. But yeah, they're, they're few and far between. I, I, the sequence in Treasure Island is like where the movie drags the most for me. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. a they kind of clearly don't know what to do other than just trot through that plot for a little bit, and it just feels like they're on that island too long. And I, you know, it's meant to be this big adventure film, but it's a very loose adventure through some very just vague and overarching literary classics. Like, there's not much real plot outside of he wants to go home. Like, he's very thin. Mm. Like As a character, he has got he really has no chill. He's a bit of a drip. Like He gets at one point, yeah. I think it's fantasy, says, like you know, if you had a wish, what would it be? And it's like, oh, it could be anything. He's like, oh, I just want to go home. It's like, oh, get out of here, kid. You have no idea. You don't, you don't deserve this adventure. You don't <laughs> this guy's not going to become Richie Rich. Yeah. Think bigger, of, man. Like, the way they just kind of vaguely go through all these classics and touching on them, it's kind of like, I mean, as an introduction for literary classics for children, which I guess the whole point of this film is for, it's a bit it's a bit cynical really in that sense of like it feels like an attempt to make books and libraries cool to the kids uh, like mm. an extended after school special or something and in the wake of this rise of digital entertainment and video games it's like you know what kids books yeah. are what you love all these book puns yeah yeah but Matt, mm. as well, it's like, why are they in this order? Why start with the scary one first? Yeah, exactly. Basically, yeah, the last one. Exactly the same thing. That scene, which I actually quite like, has more jeopardy mm. than anything else in the entire film. Yeah. It's genuinely quite horrifying and scary. And when they get out of it, Stuart's adventure book actually says it's smooth sailing from here. 
as if <laughs> oh now all the yeah. attention's gone <laughs> from the film like we've done yeah, well, yeah especially when your main character the whole point of his character is that he's a bit of a scaredy cat so you end with horror where he can actually put what he's learned into practice and overcome his fears but instead, yeah. he just kind of blunders through it straight away. And then, yeah, it's mm. nice well, sunshine for the rest of the world. to put some beats in there. Like, there's the bit where he gets Long John Silver to get into the boat with the sword. And then there's obviously climaxes with the dragon, which is the largest set piece, which is, I guess, mm. where they put it at the end. But you, you're absolutely right about one thing. This speaks to something that I have thought an awful lot about, which is that, like, uh, when you make a character's arc, their hero's journey about overcoming fear it's one of the most limiting story frameworks you can give pixar is going to start reinventing the wheel a year from now like they start like having characters who are like their own worst enemy all the way through the movie until they realize what they wanted and what they wanted is actually like the opposite of what they think they want at the beginning so their story dynamics are on another level whereas one of the only pixar kind of big disappointments uh generally agreed was the good dinosaur and it was because the main journey for the character in The Good Dinosaur was that he was a kid who was afraid and all he had to do was overcome his fear. You know, unlike other movies where someone has a goal that they're going fervently towards but the yeah. solution is, is not what they think they want. If your only thing you need to do is overcome your fear, you're either going to overcome it or not. There's only two story yeah. outcomes and you're hardly not going to be... It's, it's hardly going to be the other one. Yeah, you know, it's it, going to be that he that. becomes great. He just brave. wants to get home, so he's just doing what he needs to yeah. to reach the well, he fucking He still has exit. to be told what he's accomplished. Yeah, yeah, Master literally has to come in like Obi-Wan's voice to be like, move it along, kid, move it along, kid. Wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know we're skipping ahead, but like, it, yeah, the resolution falls completely flat. At his final like meeting of the, the page master, there's nothing there other than just a recap. Yeah, it's just it's just yeah. nothing. They, like you say, the, the plot is so so thin. It literally is mm-hmm. just skipping from one. Uh, you know, and I know what you're saying in terms of that they are meant to be genres, but it does feel much more like they're just leaping between each public domain text that they don't yeah. have to pay yeah. for. <laughs> thing, you know, then and they're basically just else. running from things. They're dodging things and running things yes. almost always. There's no big solutions that are more sophisticated than that. Yes, yeah, there's no subplots. Yeah. There's no if other problems take... they have to overcome. There's no like people really they meet in the way they have to help that might deter them off their adventure. You know, they they, they get separated for a bit uh, in terms but of also, them. But also, like you know, it was interesting. Like he never actually has to do anything. That kind of like from what you know at the beginning of the film, we know he's all about statistics mm. and like there's got to be something there that like he actually gets to draw on in the adventure that kind of he can use that to his advantage but mm. there's nothing it, like you say it's just running and dodging and, and you occasionally know, yeah. fighting back right at the end but you know there's nothing where he actually has to solve anything yeah mm. it's kind of a shame because i'd love to have seen what uh, a, a more dedicated story team uh, would maybe less interference and, and and whatever could have made with this because like it if I'm looking at it as a story artist now from my own perspective and you have all these stories, I would have had it so that the characters from the stories that they enter would follow them and pursue them through the stories. So by the end, you would end up having to fight all of them or, or yeah. all of them would coalesce in some way that would create more drama. Whereas it's, it's like once you leave Jekyll and Hyde, you're, Jekyll and Hyde's done. Like that's, that, that's, that's over. Once you leave Treasure Island, Treasure Island's over. And so it's just like everything feels a little inconsequential once you've left. Can we well, talk a little bit about the director? Because we were yes, going to circle yes. back to him, uh, yeah. I was about to say, as we are slagging off the animated sequences currently, we should talk about the fact that, as I say, Joe Johnston directed the live-action sequences, uh, but the animated sequences were directed by a guy called uh, Pixel Hunt. 
who was one of the directors on Fantasia 2000. Prior to this, he worked on loads of various animations like Black Cauldron and Rescuers Down Under mm. uh, in various capacities, but it kind of, he hasn't done that much directing apart from this and yeah. Fantasia 2000. Well, what's interesting about this is that um, it's quite noteworthy because he is uh, an African-American director, which is quite unheard of in the 90s uh, animation. Like, that's actually a really big deal that he was helming this movie. And, and you know, you see him in the DVD extras, or like the, the, the making of that they did. And he seemed like a really nice guy, and he seems like he had an awful lot of enthusiasm for it. And he really does have a go at trying to mount some quite impressive... Uh, moments like I think the biggest problem this movie has is it its ambition is so high that the logistics it has to deal with aren't up to it but it's kind of a shame because animation is still trying to reconcile with like how much gatekeeping there is you know how much of a like a white male orthodoxy there is in story rooms and in productions and it's kind of like a shame to see this uh, black director get given a movie that actually, you know, for all of its faults, I have a lot of uh, affection for. And when I watched it as a kid, I thought it was amazing. But because it didn't do well, he probably never got another opportunity to make a movie like that. In in the same way that maybe a white director might have gotten more opportunities mm. after a failure. Like, like there's kind of like a movie jail you go to where some people can get out and some people can't. But it just feels a bit yeah. like maybe this was his one and done. Yeah. And it's kind of a shame because he does yeah. have some moments where he really is pushing yeah. for, for the stars, but even if he hits the ceiling. I think he shares a cell with Stephen Summers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, with Do Fantasia... Do not debase him so. Uh, with Fantasia 2000, of course, like, you know, that was after, but he only directed a sequence from that yeah. rather than the whole film. I mean, like you say, he is, he is trying to be ambitious with it, but sometimes mm. to his detriment, because I actually think one of the better... Yeah. Uh, sequences in terms of animation is the whale sequence, the car Moby Dick. I With think the blood that red is water. quite That's well one of my favourite lines in it. Like, um, however, just, uh, but they, oh, go on. they meet Captain Ahab and he just uh, fantasies, he's possessed. Horror says he's insane and eventually it's like, he's my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that sequence is quite well animated. But of course, all you can think of while watching it is the whale sequence in Pinocchio, which is one of the greatest mm. animated sequences of all time. And it's that thing of like, this mm. is quite good, but don't create a sequence that's actually one of your better ones and make me think of one of the landmarks in animation history. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's well, I mean, like the dragon sequence by. makes you think about Sleeping Beauty as well. Sleeping Beauty has the best dragon sequence of any animated yes. movie as well. Yes. Like, yeah. 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 It makes total yes. sense that he did a uh, segment of Fantasia 2000 because like, there, there are definite Fantasia nods, um, especially as it goes into the fantasy section of the movie. He's definitely trying to steal from the best, as it were. I mean, this film is like quite truncated in its current form. Like, there was a lot more segments in the animated sequence, which were obviously fully finished because you see glimpses of them in the trailers and the mm. uh, and the making of, where mm. you get to see Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Um, there's also like a clip where you see like what looks to be like the pastoral segment from Fantasia. Yeah, like, I think in the background you see uh, like Rapunzel in there, but the animation, the, the, the definitely the look of it is definitely inspired by Fantasia. I was going to say, like, uh, you guys are, like, well well on Avengers' side here, but I, I really don't like his character, like, that Patrick Stewart's played, because the amount of times he absolutely dicks. Well, he's like, an arsehole, isn't he? Yeah. yeah it, horror, the way he just talks to horror, who's, okay, perhaps he's badly written in the sense that he's a horror book who's just scared 
all the time and you know if he has all the knowledge of horror then he should be a bit more i don't yeah. know scary mm. uh, he should be an actual horror fan well he's a hunchback. Yeah, actually... that was the big joke is that he's a hunchback. he's basically the hunchback of notre dame as a book with these really cool yeah. long arms he's very beautifully designed and he has yeah, some I of like the best hanna barbera style animation he gets to do the most uh, extreme animation face basically peter Lore in book form yeah uh, <laughs> uh, but like yeah Avengers are complete dick to him like, all the way through he does and, save him from uh, the just, uh, just like the lily putt Gulliver's Travels little people yeah <laughs> it, well, it, it definitely feels well. like a flaw in a character that they did not do enough heavy lifting to redeem him from by the yeah. end uh, it's a bit like the, the Black Friday cut of Toy Story that almost shut the movie down when they'd been taking note after note after note from the executives because I think it was uh Jeffrey Katzenberg, he kept telling them to make Toy Story more edgy and darker, more adult. Make it more for adults, make it more for adults. And consequently, there was this cut that they made of Toy Story in, in, entirely in story reels. They called it Black Friday because Woody, as voiced by Tom Hanks for most part, was just an utter irredeemable dick. He was like the villain of the piece because yeah, they made it too Tom dark, Hanks. too edgy, and they just made him unlikable <laughs> to an extreme. And they that was when Pixar had to make a decision that we're going to follow our own instincts mm, here. And we, they took like a weekend and reconceived the movie and then reboarded it. And they're like, without which the movie wouldn't have come out. History would have gone completely mm. differently. Hey, off the bat, you're going to make us, Woody? No, he is. Slinky, slink. Slanky! Get up here and do your job! Are you deaf? I said take care of them! Uh, I'm sorry, Woody, but uh, I have to agree with them. I don't think what you did was right. Uh, what? Am I hearing correctly? You don't think I was right? Who said your job was to think, Spring Wiener? Well, I, I just, just thought that you... Just use this vast uh, reserve of brain power to consider this for a moment. If it wasn't for me, Andy wouldn't pay any attention to you at all. In fact, my sketchy friend, you would have been hauled away to Goodwill a long time ago, so shut your mouth and get them off the bed! But it's interesting, because he said he'd been voicing the character for, like, 30 years recently, and it was, and it was like, oh, that puts it around 1991. Uh, so yeah, he was recording lines for that film in the story sessions. Yeah. As the first way in, the in, the, in a whole new medium, it probably took them five years or so because it came out in yeah. 1995. Yeah, yeah, he was probably still doing Bonfire of the Vanities when he was making this movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's so weird. There's such an alchemy to making a good animated movie. There are so many movies where a bunch of incredibly talented people can be involved with them. People who have got amazing credits on other movies, like look at the number of talent talented people who were on this movie and yet for one reason or another have it be studio interference have it be problems with the story or budgetary con issues and constraints for some reason they just about miss it or sometimes they're not marketed properly and they just they just disappear without a trace it's so weird um uh, and the page master is definitely sort of caught in that nexus as it were in the nexus bring it back the to nexus. Realm. <laughs> that's a 1904 reference yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this isn't right this can't be real. It's as real as you want it to be. Guinan. What's going on? Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you wanted. But... I never had a home like this. Not a wife and children. But these are all mine. 
I only have one more thing to say about the ending. The third in my trilogy of trashing Ed Begley Jr.'s fathering skills, <laughs> which is that he's already acted so badly towards his kids, showed zero sensitivity to what his kids going through in life basically marches him off to buy nails which if he got struck by lightning would probably have fused with his skeleton or something shit like that speed his um, death. like basically after having had to drive all the way around with his wife because he realizes oh shit i let my son go out in a fucking thunderstorm just because i think he's a pussy they come home and they find out that obviously the big thing is that richard has, has, has conquered his fears now he's up in the treehouse you know it's the perfect final moment but what does Ed Begley Jr. do? He goes up to the treehouse, which is, by the way, half-built. So there's a massive hole in the side. There's a massive hole in another side. And then there's the doorway to, to the ladder, which is also just a massive hole in the floor of the treehouse. And Macaulay Culkin's asleep on it. And his, his wife's like, we should put him to bed. And he's like, no, no, let's let him sleep here. And he just does, like, the sweet thing. And it's meant to be this really amazing, beautiful moment where he puts the you know, like a coat over him and kisses him goodnight and he says goodnight, son. But there's no way Macaulay Culkin, if he rolls over in either direction, is going to fall out of that fucking tree. He does not break survive his fucking the neck. <laughs> this is like the worst father in the whole world. I he just wanted to put it out there. All along. And we've well, literally you know, just like... established the day before that this is a treehouse that you could badly hurt yourself by falling out of. Anyway, it, it, it just irks me. Oh, Ed Pickle Jr. Uh, my final thought as well on that like final segment so we were back in the live action world uh not holding a sword as in the trailer which was exciting in the trailer but yeah. is not in the movie macaulay Culkin now takes his bike and it's trash he throws all the safety features off it he cycles down the, the road where the the kids were looking at the, doing this massive jump and he without a helmet on decides <laughs> to take it on and does it and i thought this is the worst message yeah. to send to children everywhere that you should be just be a cool kid disobey like all safety dispense with your helmet and then just like take it take these things at speed and this was a this is an idea you're quite right Paul this is an idea that could be fixed by having it be that the problem he has to overcome is a bully stand up to a bully anything else other than something that is objectively not a wise thing to do if you're a kid yeah he, he doesn't need to do this thing yeah he has a very odd line of dialogue after he does his evil Knievel stunt as well, where he's riding off and he goes, good, that was definitely good. And I thought, is he trying to pull an inception on the audience <laughs> or something? Like, you know, go like, oh, yeah, that was a great film. Really, really good. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah really good. good. Like, just so odd. It's a running gag I, that he says this like is definitely not good all the way through the movie. He says this is not good, this is definitely not good. And then, yeah, obviously you've got to reverse it because that's supposedly clever writing. But not if there's no actual logic behind it, you know? Yeah. Because what is it that he's going to do now? Is he going to become friends with these guys who are clearly cunts? You know, who just... <laughs> like, every single one of them are just being mean to a complete and total stranger. And, like, so now it's inferred that he's going to be cool enough to hang around with them. He's going to become another asshole. So, moving on to final thoughts, uh, from me at least, with this film. Um, yes, I, I did not like it. I think the story is so, so thin. The animation for in the main is often piss poor. I think there are good moments. Like I think the Jekyll and Hyde sequence is suitably horrifying, but it's so oddly placed that it kind of ruins mm -hmm. it. You know, I think some of the voice work is good. I do like Peace Stew in it. I think everyone in terms of voice work is doing a decent job. I actually like some of the live yeah. action library sequences and the set 
everything like that. Christopher Lloyd is obviously great as the librarian. But I just think that you just look at this and you say, how did you think that this was going to kind of reel kids in? It, it reminded me of a like a Christmas Day also ran animated special um, you know, that's yeah. kind of put on in the afternoon to distract the kids on a mm-hmm. year where it's not a Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and it comes just... up at the end saying, visit your local library. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I can totally see why this bombed. I, I really can, because I just don't think it really offers much excitement or anything like that. And I just, I cannot see where the money went at all. Uh, so we do do star ratings. I'm going to give it. Yeah, what would you rate it? As? I'll give it one and a half stars. One and a half. One and a half stars. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so is it better than like Police Academy Five: Assignment Miami Beach? <laughs> oh, God, I mean, Police Academy Five: Assignment Miami Beach also got one and a half stars. Exactly. I probably enjoyed watching Assignment Miami Beach more. I gotta be honest. Just out you would enjoy like... Cats Don't Dance because René Aubergenois similarly hands it up. Yes, uh, yeah, as, yeah, as yeah. a lovey director in the uh, 50s. But it's you really know, fun. they're about on the same level. Paul, final thoughts. Okay, um, I'm going to say probably of all the Star Trek alumni that we've seen today, I think Goldberg comes away with the best credit because she's yeah. fa- I think she's fantastic all the way through. She's quite fun in it. She's got some, some really good lines. Uh, she's tonally correct the whole way through, I think, actually. Uh, I like Patrick Stewart. is really mean to horror, uh, <laughs> and horror. Who's Wait, just, don't forgive just him. <laughs> oh, well, they're forgiving for that. Like, uh, um, uh, I, I also disagree that Christopher Lloyd's good in it. I think he's pretty bad in it, to be honest. Really? Um, oh, wow. I think this this needed a Robert Prosky performance at uh, a Last Action Hero. It does have a lot of Last Action Hero parallels, doesn't it? This is yeah. like the yeah. shitty yeah. Last Action Hero. It also yeah. Yeah. is centered Same around yeah. a magical ticket, like a magical yeah. library or cinema ticket. Library card. Yeah, I think. Prosky carries that like ma- you know magical kind of essence a lot better than Lee, uh, Lloyd does here with his overacting. Yeah. And you have this kind of some very strange choices by Lloyd, particularly the last scene where he sort of just looks it down the camera a little bit, and it just looks like he's uh, it, it project a lot of like bad things onto the way he's looking at Colkin. So I'm just like, <laughs> no. uh, so so props to Goldberg, uh, Stuart. Not gonna. I'm not. Yeah, okay, you fooled me. You can do other voices, but that doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> I don't have to like it, doesn't mean it. you have to like it, kid. <laughs> I'm going to give a shout-out for Nimoy's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. It seems like he walked in from a, like a, a BBC4 adaptation of that, like uh, not in the Page Master. But yeah, I think this is far superior to Mammy Beach because it's actually interesting. I love that that's your yardstick. <laughs> yeah, I always say, well... Like animation, you know, when you, you know how much goes into it, you know, and I'm talking to Dave, we know how much planning goes into it. And to see the end product of all that labor, you know, when they could have known far in advance of how wrong it was going, yeah, it's a here on the screen in front of us. It just bogs the mind sometimes. And I think yeah. it is so interesting to see a product of that era as well. It's a kind of lost era, it's a lost film. It's kind of strange. It is ripe for kind of reappraisal because a lot of things at that tail end before CGI takes over the world, there might be some good in there. We've got Anastasia, like in 20th Century Fox. DreamWorks did Prince of Egypt, Iron Giant, Warner Brothers. There are some like golden like animation happening in the 90s, but there's an awful lot of like grade D stuff too. It doesn't seem to be any kind of like passable stuff. It's just, it seems to be like a hit or a 
complete swing and miss, doesn't it? So yeah, from that perspective, I find it really interesting. I, I quite enjoyed watching it and learning more about it. I'm going to give it two stars. Two stars? After all that, two stars. You're like, we've seen the three and a half <laughs> years, they worked their fingers to the bone on this animation. Yeah, I think I think two is pretty good. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, well, generous, generous. Well, generous I mean, it's a lot definitely. of problems with it. <laughs> Matt. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Paul was saying there. It, it's, it's strange how it feels like we can have such a quote-unquote modern lost film. Like it's not—it's not like an old silent two-reeler from the twenties that's been uncovered. Yeah. <laughs> this is something from our lifetime that has essentially gone un, unnoticed. And it is a strange beast. I think I think the idea of doing this kind of live-action animated hybrid style for this story is a really good idea. But as we've discussed, I think the story just takes so many strange and unnecessary and just poor choices in the way it goes about. I mean, it's telling a thin story anyway, and then the way it structures that out and paces it out is just straight up bad. By the time it gets towards the end for me, I realize that this is kind of just like a very poor man's Wizard of Oz, essentially. It's, you know, it's a journey with three companions through a distant mm. land, which ends with them meeting a wizard overlord of said world to get home. And I was like, mm. oh, okay, well, yeah, take, take the basic Wizard of Oz thing, but have nobody really learn anything or... None of the other book characters really get anything. I mean, does he take them out at the end that they want? Do they exist in the real world uh, as physical objects? Does he go and pick up... I mean, what is horror? Wh which book is he? Or is he just horror, like an encyclopedia? Like, same with the others. It's like, they've got to be certain things. And I think Colkins, you know, I think he got a lot of flack for this. I think he got, like, uh, some Razzie nominations. And he's, he he, he's, not, he's not great either in the voice acting yeah. or in his book ending mm -hmm. parts, but... It's like, how bad was Kevin Costner who won the Razzie? <laughs> yeah, what, Jesus did he win for Waterworld? Wyatt Earp, No, for Wyatt yeah. Earp. Oh, okay. But, you know, I think the, the animation does have a certain charm. Like, there's certain parts of it that strangely just annoyed me. Like, Culkin's uh, weird cartoon lips look so odd. Like, <laughs> and especially during the... They're the wrong uh, colour. Yeah, they're a yeah. Little during like, the like Treasure Island segment, I couldn't color. help but notice that. But Paul's right, I think I think Whoopi Goldberg's a really good addition here. And and Stuart, you know, for, for everything he's doing here, I didn't recognise him, so I think he's given it his all. I think it just really lacks some meaningful other characters. Like, the film feels empty. This other world has sort of nothing in it, aside from the central characters they come across. And that, that fact that they never do really reappear much kind of really adds to the fact that this is kind of this an empty world. And if you want to give across the message that books are this gateway to imagination and, and wonderment, to have this kind of empty landscape, like it feels like a video game level in debug phase or something before they put the enemies in. Like there's nothing really here. Like, and who is this for? It's a, it's a strange thing. So I can see I can see kids really enjoying this at the time. I must have been one of them. Um, I, I can't imagine me coming away from this age seven or eight and being like, oh, that was bad. Like, I wasn't at the age when I could recognize bad stuff at that point. But all that <laughs> said and done, uh, yeah, it's it scrapes a two-star for me as well. Okay. Dave? Well, so I have a very complex relationship with this because this was a really, really big deal to me when I was a kid when I watched it. And uh, when I was about to watch it again, I was thinking, well, this feels like the kind of movie that the three star was made for in that it's so ambitious, you can't just give it like a one, but it's not good enough to be anything higher than a three. And so I was kind of tempted to give it like a low three, the lowest of all threes, because it's, 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 it occupies a space in my nostalgia, and I'm sure it does for a lot of people. But weirdly, I do kind of have to think about kids who have been raised like the generations after us who have been raised on nothing but computer animated movies, and they know how that was done. Anyone can tell you, even if they're rather young, like, oh, that's made in a computer. They know what a computer is. They know that computer animation is pretty limitless in what you can accomplish. 
But if you look at the making of this movie, there's like so many incredible uh, bits of footage of things that I guzzled up when I was a kid that made me want to work in animation or made me want to work in films, period. Like the moments where you would see them drawing the characters on these massive flip books in pencil and you'd see them pencil out each little movement. And me and my brother would not only like watch that, that really cheesy Christopher Lloyd hosted making of over and over and over again, because we were so excited by, by what they were telling us. Hello there. I've been expecting you. If you're like most people, my face probably looks familiar, but you may be trying to place my name. I'm Mr. Dewey, the caretaker of this wonderful, magical, haunted house of man's imagination called the library. Today I'm here to tell you about a new movie that takes place in this wonderful world of books called The Page Master. You might call it an epic, but it's really more like three zillion adventures rolled into one. Catch this action. See what I mean? Then stick around. I'll make it worth your while. But also we would like constantly watch the movie and pause it over and over again at different points to see how the animation worked. And we would freeze frame and we would just see, oh, this expression, and then they would move to this expression and that's how that character has that whiplash moment. And and so it's weird, like the, the movie did light a fire in me before Toy Story changed the whole game of being like, oh my God, animation is so cool, it's so magical. And now I look at it as, a, uh, as an adult, I'm like, okay, well, this is objectively not a well thought out movie it suffered greatly from its production uh, travails. And it also feels a little crass because it falls into that category of Macaulay Culkin movies where you can sense the whole industry that kind of made Macaulay Culkin have a meltdown. You can sense them trying to get their money's worth out of him, squeeze as much young Macaulay Culkin content out as possible before he is aged out of being bankable to them because he's the Home Alone kid. So there's something kind of cynical about the, the, the ingredients being thrown into this movie, like, you know, the Home Alone ingredients and then the Disney ingredients, which are obviously very like ambitious but also stolen you know like uh, a, a lot of a lot of plagiarism going on so yeah i i mean i guess it is like a high two low three for me i mean but um i do want it to have a cult status because it, it does show the intersection of cg and animation it is something that uh, you could maybe plop a kid down today a kid who knows about cg animation and they might not actually know how it was accomplished like they might actually be it might actually have gotten to the point where it's old to begin with finally and maybe those movies will be magical in their own way to the kids so i hope even though we've kind of roasted it the whole way through this pod i do hope that disney plus puts it uh on its streaming service and i do hope it has like another life even though you know it's you know story-wise it's definitely a two-star film so it's like a two-star but for my nostalgia i'm giving it a, a nostalgic really low three you mentioned that we've mentioned a couple of times the making of i probably enjoyed the making of more than the actual film just because it was yeah, one of fun, those making of you don't get now where it's hosted by one of the leads of the film christopher lloyd in character yeah. i love those 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 making offs that are just slightly more than the epk the electronic press kits you get where there are five minutes this was a good 20 minutes mm. of behind the scenes of lots of crt monitors I mean, it did show uh, the way story rooms used to be structured which is that because of lack of computers and the lack of flicks and all these other uh, programs that allow you to now 
uh, storyboard very cinematically and intuitively um, across platforms. The original 90s form of story is actually quite a romantic era of production, which is like all of the separate boards would be hand-drawn and then put up on a big cork board. And the person who had boarded that sequence would have to have a, like, a, like a, a long stick and would be kind of like talking the director and the production crew and the story department through the scene, doing the voices, really, really putting performance in and trying to sell what they were doing to the director and then they would all give their notes. It's kind of a nice little glimpse in that making of a, a bygone era because we still do a lot of presentation when we pitch, but we're obviously aided by a lot more technology. But it is kind of nice because when I was a kid, I mean, I, it sounds corny to say, but when I was a kid, those making ofs really, really set my soul alight. And I was like, oh my God, that looks like the coolest thing in the world. And in fact, for a long time, I didn't actually go for animation jobs because I almost felt like it was so cool that I was never gonna, I'm, that's not that's not a job I'm gonna ever gonna have. Like really talented people are gonna do that. And then I went to film school and I tried to, you know, uh, that's where I met all you guys and, and we did independent shorts and stuff. And it took a while for me to come back around to realizing like, actually, why not me? Why, like, I could be one of those people. And now I watch the Page Master and I'm like, definitely I could fucking do it because of the Page Master. <laughs> <laughs> not actually that Burn. good but, uh, but but it was nice it, like that is a, a little tiny beginning of the path that led me to the job that i absolutely love doing now within all that muddle of that film there is one idea that they're trying to get to which is the idea and it's badly articulated by him jumping the the sort of stunt bike sequence which is that they're trying to say that in fiction and in books sometimes you need to live through something in fiction before you can do it in real life. Sometimes you read about best friends before you can be a great best friend, or sometimes you can read about heroism before you can be a hero. And that's something that they were trying to tell. They just did it in the most asinine and muddled way. I don't really subscribe to Roger Ebert's like, oh, it's it's a movie trying to get us into books, but it's also hogging a computer game, like 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 tr trying to get us to, to, to look at stories in every other medium. But really, it applies to film. It applies to video games. It applies to storytelling in general. It doesn't have to just be about books. And so that was a movie yeah. about storytelling and the power of storytelling. And even though yeah. it, it didn't make its point well, you know, it, it is an example of something that inspired me. Yeah, I also think Ebert's like a bit mean there. That's him portraying the fact that he should be looking at the film completely in of itself, mm. like reviewing the, art, the, the, the piece of work in front of him and decontextualize all of that stuff. I mean, give the movie a fair shot on its own merits. I'm also a big advocate of like big failed epic movies that like, <laughs> they spent a lot of money and you know, like Alien 3, Liam, which you saw for the first time uh, this yes, week. Yes, I was thinking right. Cat. I've uh, always <laughs> been a big defender of that movie. And, and I watched um, the 2003 assembly cut as well. So presumably closer to the original vision, over half an hour longer. Uh, the, the actual wow. cut so it is a big you know it's a, a big difference when you lent this to me Paul uh, because I've seen the first two Alien films but I've never seen three and four basically and wow. when you lent it to me you said uh, oh just watch the theatrical cut of Alien 3 and then I happened yeah, that's because me and the executives know what's good for you, Liam. <laughs> and then, uh, if this episode is evidence of anything, it's that the executives are always on the money. Yeah, I happened to well, be yeah. on a video chat with Daryl and Jeanette of Matt's other podcast, Sun Double Deep. Sun Double um, Deep. And I'm wearing Darryl, their t-shirt right now. Uh, yeah, they, both Dave and Matt are wearing the t-shirts, official merch and Sun Double Hi, Daryl and Jeanette. And uh, Daryl, his favourite film of all time, I believe, is Alien, the, the original film. And oh, so nice. we, I said, <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to watch Alien 3 tonight. And he said, oh, which version are you going to watch? 
And I said, well, Paul was recommended that I watch the theatrical cut. To which Daryl's reply was, fuck off. <laughs> and then <laughs> went on an impassioned plea for me to watch the assembly oh, what cut. what a flex, in, in, Wilson. Instead. And was like, you know, this is the one you got. And he was so passionate and emotional, <laughs> uh, almost in tears. Uh, so if I knew you so were telling me, me that, I would be passionate that you've made a choice <laughs> between two of your best friends. And uh, so Wilson overruled. I, I was convinced by, by his argument. Uh, to watch Alien Free Assembly Cut, and I, I messaged Paul and said, "Look, I'm going to have to betray you. Watch the Assembly Cut." Uh, to which Paul <laughs> re- uh, replied, mm, uh, "Not very impressed." I'm sorry, Paul. I'm sorry that your friend doesn't respect you. I, I mean, to be honest, really yeah. I've got to be honest. I don't think that watching the theatrical or the Assembly would have really improved my kind of feelings about the film because my issues mm. with the movie weren't really to do with the length. It was one of those films to me that seemed both too long and too short at the same time. I was fine with the length, really, but there were certain things that I felt like could have been expanded on and stuff. You listen to me, you piece of shit. You fuck me one more time, I'll cut you in off. (laughs) It's clearly still (laughs) compromised. You know, you're never going to get the kind of proper uh, film out there. It was fine, but coming off the back of Aliens, you know, which is an absolute masterpiece... Mm. And like, you know, like, regardless of how they moved around bits of sequence and and footage or whatever, they really shot themselves in the foot the moment they killed Newt. You know, like, basically, like, the the audience fell in love with this mother-daughter relationship and the third movie just got rid of it in the first scene without even, like, any moment, really. It was just like, oh, Ah. that's done. And so it's like, yeah, you can say which of the two versions you prefer, but for me, that's where they lost me. So, yeah, Death of Newt felt can't be very helped. unjust, especially having just rewatched Aliens the week before. It just felt that's all for nothing. Yeah. They obviously wanted to get Ripley back to being a lone wolf straight away. But, you know, mm. Alien Free Analysis is for another podcast. But, you know, we'll go... Actually, go. I was going to ask. I was going to ask one more time. Actually, uh, the other movie I saw that you watched recently was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, yes. which is another live-action animation combo. And you said it's the first time you've watched it since you were a kid. Yeah, so uh, this is something I'd be really interested to hear your view. talk about before we go, because The yeah. Page Master is one of the few animation live action Mm. hybrids there aren't actually that many the majority of them have not been successful either critically or commercially cool world monkey bone osmosis jones but who framed roger rabbit is obviously the big success Mm. and i rewatch it say yeah for the first i watched it loads when i was a kid uh, but it's just one of those films i haven't watched since i was a kid Mm. and i thought because we were doing this i specifically watched it and it is it's still fucking great it's so so i mean it's zemeckis at the top of his game yeah only someone with the meticulous like clout and brio that zemeckis had at that in in that period could have done it it still looks amazing so audacious it's so smart the blending of the cell animation and the real world is seamless Mm absolutely incredible it also juggles tone really well it's a very sophisticated movie tonally because it's got some darkness in it and it's got adult themes in it and yeah. yet it manages to be coherent and cohesive well it's like a Chinatown spoof isn't it and you know it's just yeah it's fucking great and you yeah. know I think when you put something like this up against two frame Roger actually Robert, it's a Chinatown second sequel that never got made yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 you yeah. could watch no, them as a double like, feature that'd be an amazing double feature it's based on the, the third proposed Chinatown movie. Are you serious? Yes, serious. 
the, f- the first one was about water. Second one was about oil. The third one was going to be about the freeways. Oh my god, that's amazing! Like oh, uh, wow. the two Rogers. That's so um, cool. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 wicked. So basically, if you, you can't watch Page Master anyway, but <laughs> Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit, Rabbit is available <laughs> on Disney Plus. So go fill your boots. Yeah, and the only Is other that? the only other uh, big live action animation combo I could think of was like Space Jam, and they're remaking that with what is it, LeBron James? What is oh, Space Jam doing Two? Space Jam? Space Jam Two, yeah, with yeah. LeBron James. Uh, what's it called? Space Jam, uh, Next Generation. We're reaching a weird tipping point in culture where a bunch of these movies that disappeared without a trace at the time are now becoming cult classics. And so it's like, there's like a weird niche audience for the original Space Jam. It's weird. The Page Master doesn't have that following, but I guess for obvious reasons. A- apart from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, has anyone else got any other favourite mixing of live action and animation films? Oh, Lonely Tunes back in action. Yeah, yes! <laughs> That is an underrated mm. movie. There's good fun. That yeah, film. it's a Dante completely off. Uh, I mean, pulling another Gremlins too. How he got this film made, I don't know. But it's not. It's not great by any stretch. But it's certainly like much better than Space Jam. Yeah. <laughs> the Looney Tunes are back on the big screen. We hug. We cry. <laughs> So did you miss me? And all they have to do is travel the world to find the blue monkey. What's a blue monkey? A very special diamond. The diamond has supernatural powers. Now, if I were a giant diamond, where would I be? Not there. You know this all sounds insane. Kids love it. I don't know the meaning of the word fear. Say your prayers! Fear. Now, a state of terror. We cannot let a boy, a girl, and a rabbit thwart our plans for global domination. What about the duck? Death never misses a cue. God, sir. Hit me. Hit me. Hit me. Hit me, Rabbit! Boy's about as sharp as a bowling ball. Where's your civity sack? You want the varmints and what they come for? Modified Chevrolet with a big 24 on the side. Out of the way, fancy boy. Coming through. Ah! A little help here. What kind of sick joke is this? Who has dynamite? Throw it out the window! It'll send the wrong message to children! Okay, well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Paul looks tired and we need to put him to bed. Dave, where can we find you online? Pretty much only on Twitter as at DRumble, where I basically tweet a lot about animation and every now and again I do review threads of animated movies. Right now I'm doing something Disney Plus David, which is just me going through all of the uh, Disney animated features um, one by one. And uh, they really ballooned since I started. Yeah, man, time to get back on that now you got some time off. Now I've got some time off. Believe me, Three Caballeros is the next on my list, and I'm uh, finally able to like I've got all my gifts ready for it. It's just it's one of those things the that gifts like gifts uh, are ready. In the last couple of weeks of working on Wendell and Wild, I literally just could not justify that amount of time dedicated to it because I was we were right up against the deadline. So now that I finally have two weeks off, I'm going to start filling it with yet another useless Twitter thread. Uh, but it, it really really makes me happy way to, to like to... catalog them. Is there like any way somebody can go easily go back through them? Um, I'm I've got a tweet. Uh, pinned to the top of my Twitter, which is a link to each of all of the threads oh, that brilliant. you can click on. Because they're through them again. really good. These these threads, mate. These are proper meticulous deep dives into each of the Disney animated films. And for anyone who's got mm. even a passing interest in Disney animation or animation in general, I'd recommend these. They're, they're yeah, proper absolutely. in depth. 
Thanks, man. I mean, it's really fun just to see where we've come from, especially if you're in the industry. You know, you want to try and blaze a trail. You want to take the right things and the right lessons because as movies that we've been talking about today can show, like you can take some of those elements but not use them right. You know, you can try and understand what people's values are in terms of storytelling rather than just being the shark that eats money. It's really nice just to look at what those artists were working with, especially through the lens of the era that they were making it in, like, you know, the way that socially they were limited, the way that they had different biases, you know, the, the way representation was skewed. Um, all of those things are important to understand. So that's been a, re a very rewarding thing for me, considering I'm now in that job. Need to compile them all into a little self-published book or something at the end. Daryl from Southern Double Deep keeps telling me I should do that. Yeah. Maybe I should try and find a way to put them on a blog or something that, that's in one place, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd really definitely. Like, they're terrific. Really, really awesome. Okay, that is brilliant. Thank you for that, David. Uh, you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at spotlightpod at gmail.com if you're unhappy with your childhood being trashed by episode on the page master <laughs> today. We um, apologize. Also, I would like to recommend instead of watching the page master, you can watch the angry video game nerd playing the page master video game with Macaulay Culkin himself <laughs> on YouTube. That is very funny. It's amazing. More entertaining uh, than the film itself. Definitely <laughs> check that out. I, um, that's where I'm going <laughs> that, is really, that is really, really good. Uh, we will be back again um, with another episode focusing on some aspect of the Star Trek universe. Who's to say where we're going next. Dave, I'm sure we'll get you back again at some point on the show to pick, you know, one of your favourite episodes the next three years or something like that. In another three uh, years. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, start thinking of your favourite episode, that's it. We'll see you again in 2023, mate, all right? <laughs> I've had an absolute blast, though. I miss you guys. And oh, I wish I could have been here face-to-face, -face, but, you know, the, the way the world is. But yeah. it's been such a blast. I've had a great time. Well, it's great to see you, mate. Yeah, great, great, great to, to see, see you, man. Absolutely awesome to see you. I'd just like to say... A about this episode of the podcast good that was definitely good <laughs> <laughs>